0: Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to the podcast that covers everything from the paranormal to true crime. Don't forget to subscribe. That really helps us reach a larger audience. And let us know what you think at crypteekpodcast at gmail.com. You can check out our awesome t-shirts at crypteekpodcaststore.com. And if you want to contribute directly, Buy Me a Coffee is a service that allows you to make a small donation to show appreciation for the show. You can find all of our socials in the show notes. Dr. Mark G. Hewitt, a true crime author and award-winning public speaker, joins us as he crisscrosses the globe in pursuit of the most captivating, unanswered questions and enduring mysteries. Renowned for his meticulous research, Dr. Hewitt is the acclaimed author behind the Zodiac Serial Killer series, a trilogy unraveling the complex tale of California's most infamous unidentified serial killer. With a background that spans theology, ministry, and business administration, Dr. Hewitt brings a multifaceted lens to the mysteries that captivate us. Get ready for an enthralling exploration into the realm of true crime with our esteemed guest, Dr. Mark G. Hewitt. How are you doing tonight?
1: I'm doing great.
0: Great. Well, thanks for joining us. You've got so much interesting information to share. Uh, What was it that got you started in true crime?
1: I have to go all the way back to when I was about 11 years old. Okay. I I picked up a pocketbook when I was at a cottage one summer. And it was the Lizzie Borden case. Mm. And uh, it kind of shocked me that uh, a young woman could axe a couple people to death or could be in the center of uh, accusations of having killed her father and stepmother. I was uh, a little bit naive at the time and had never really been exposed to anything true crime related. Mm -hmm. The story really stuck with me and I, uh, I couldn't get out of my head. I thought about it for weeks and uh that kind of started my lifelong interest in true crime. Yeah, it's a great mystery. Uh
0: that's a little little dark for 11, but uh
1: <laughs> apparently my my parents weren't uh, reviewing my reading selection.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, today kids have access to, you know, actual murder scenes, photos and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, that's rough. That's really young. What, what about that case in particular? Was it just that it was kind of unsolved or was it the violence? What struck you about that?
1: I, I've had a hard time figuring out exactly what it was, but I think it was a combination of things. It was the, uh, during the Victorian era. It mm. was U.S. history. It was uh, uh, two spinsters living at home with uh, elderly parents. It was uh, obviously the murders and the, uh, the unsolved nature of it all. So it's probably all of those things that you listed. Uh, just it's just a fascinating. So I love stories. I've always loved stories, and that has is one that has stuck with me.
0: Yeah, it sticks with people for sure. Have you written a book on uh, Lizzie Borden, or is that on the horizon anywhere?
1: I have not. I've toyed with the idea. I've uh, kind of sketched it out. Mm-hmm. listed a couple of chapters that i would uh, i would write I'm, I'm hesitant to do so because so much has been written about the case sure and I haven't read everything that's been written though I am working my way through it slowly but surely i i have a an interesting angle on it and and uh what fascinates me about the case is how much death is involved in the entire culture that they lived in
0: mm-hmm
1: A year or so prior to the the double murder, there was another family member who was killed. Um, Don't hear much about that. No. Tale of the case. It took place uh, just a few years, you know, not that long after the Civil War ended. So um, many, many men didn't come back from the Civil War. Yeah. It's probably why those two young women never married.
0: Well, tell us about the books that you have written. Just go over a list for the listeners.
1: Okay. Well, my first book is entitled, Yes, I Can Change. And that's a self-help book Okay. that uh, deals with the whole topic of change, how it's inevitable in our lives and how uh, we need to be prepared for change or else uh, we won't be able to keep up. Sure. I'm um, it it's my first published book, and I'd appreciate it if nobody would read it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know how you feel. Trust me.
1: <laughs> do you? Okay, I do. I, um, I I had a lot of fun with it. It was a great thing to put together, but it was my early days. So uh, it was my lighter days too, as before I turned to writing about true crime. Following that, I wrote a book on. I co-wrote a book, Charles Manson Behind Bars. This I did with a co-author. In part of advertising and and promoting my first book, I reached out to inmates in prison, wrote them letters, and asked if they'd be interested in reading the the book um, mm-hmm. The idea was if they wrote a if they read a book on change and a change came to their lives, wouldn't that be uh, wonderful advertising for my yeah. for my book and my theories on personal and interpersonal change mm-hmm And I wrote as many high profile criminals as I could think of and whose addresses I could find on the internet. And Mm -hmm. one day I received a response back from Charles Manson. Wow. I corresponded with him over the course of about a year. And I made friends with his, uh, his next door neighbor. Mm -hmm. And um, once his next door neighbor, Willie Mendez was moved to another prison facility, he wrote to me and we began corresponding and he started telling me stories about Manson, things that he'd told him, things that he'd observed in prison and described what life in prison was like. Mm-hmm. I thought, holy cow, this is amazing stuff. We got to get this down on yeah. paper. These are stories that nobody else has access to. Right. So we collaborated and, and produced Charles Manson Behind Bars in 2013 and it's a fascinating read. I can't uh, vouch for all the accuracy of everything because it was given to me by information, by an inmate, Sure, and, you know, he, he explained it from his point of view and shared quotes and stories from his memory. So how accurate it is, I can't vouch for, but it's an amazing read. Um, some people have read it, have said, it's really a fascinating look at what life is like behind bars for inmates. Mm-hmm. Some of the rules that they have to abide by, the uh, the amount of respect that they need to have for one another, um, how inmates communicate with one another from cell to cell. It's pretty interesting.
0: Man, I can't imagine opening my mail and seeing Charlie Manson on a letter. We'll get into the other people that you've uh, corresponded with, but that takes a lot of courage, Because I have thought about doing that in the past. I used to do a true crime podcast and I was like, man, I just don't know if it's worth the risk. Because who knows, you know, what kind of access these people have to the outside from people that, you know, were in there. And, you know, with Manson, he had just so many followers that, you know, I don't know. That'd just be scary. Do you have any uh, stories where people have, uh, you know, maybe contacted you or, or said like, Hey, you know, leave this guy alone. We don't want you talking about this. Keep your mouth shut or anything like that.
1: Boy, Jeremiah, I'm sure glad you didn't talk to me a few years ago because I, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't put a lot of thought into that aspect of it before mm-hmm. writing him. But I later found out that, yeah, he's got a lot of uh, followers outside of prison and he's got followers from around the world. Yeah. In fact, um, a year or so after the book came out, I got a phone call from a Rolling Stones reporter
0: hmm. who
1: was asking questions about uh, Charles Manson. He said, I- I'm down here in Corcoran, and I'm hanging out with some of Charlie's friends, and I wanted to give you a call and find out more about Charlie. Hmm. So it's like, wow, um, I'm not, obviously not a very difficult person to find. <laughs> Fortunately, Charlie never uh, came after me.
0: Well, that's Amazing, so good for you. I mean that. Like I said, it takes takes a lot of courage to do that.
1: Well, it was a it was a life changing experience to pull the envelope out of the mailbox mm-hmm. and stare at it and see Charles Manson's signature on the return the, the the return address with a swastika written really dark over top of his signature. I just stood there and stared at it like holy cow, this guy that I've heard about for 50 years has sent me a letter. You're, you're absolutely right. It was uh, it was quite shocking.
0: I wonder what that uh, signature would be worth. I, I'm sure that, you know, with this murderabilia industry that's kind of going on, that would, that would hold a lot of value, probably not as much as it does to you personally. But, you know, monetary wise, I think that would probably be worth quite a bit of money.
1: Quite possibly, I have no intention of selling the letters that I received from him, but uh, sure yeah, it prob- it's probably has some money some uh, monetary value.
0: All right, so let's move on what What other books have you written?
1: Then after that, I wrote a, those are my first two books, mm-hmm. then I wrote a trilogy on the Zodiac serial killer in 2000 I published them in 2016, 17, and 18. Nice. and these are titled uh, "Hunted." Profiled and exposed. Now, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into on these three books that I've published, but they're they're kind of my uh, they're my pride and joy at this point. Sure, I understand. Yeah, it's some amazing insights
0: that you have. Where and and we'll get into it in a in a bit. But you know, when people probably first heard this theory, they're like, ah, come on. But then you present so many. Uh, what some people call coincidences, I don't necessarily believe in coincidences, but your your evidence backs up your claim over and over and over. And it's really amazing how you put everything together. Tell the listeners where they can get all these books.
1: Well, as they say, they're available anywhere that books can be found, books can be sold. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're available on uh, Amazon.com is a popular place for getting them, but also Google and uh, Apple and any other places. Uh, your local bookstore, if it doesn't have it on my books on their shelves, they can order them for you.
0: It sounds like the perfect, you know, holiday present for anyone who's interested in true crime. So
1: I think so. I've I've sold quite a few this fall uh, in preparation for Christmas. Yes.
0: Perfect. And I bet if they act now, they'll be able to get it by Christmas without a problem. So get out there, Crypt Keepers. All right. So I do have a lot of questions. You can say whatever you want. I'm not going to edit anything except a cough or a sneeze or, you know, something like that. But let's start off with the Zodiac. I think that I myself, I believe I know the story. I think that there's a lot of people out there that believe they know the story, but as I've found with other guests, you really don't know as much as you think you know. Can you just kind of run us through his his history?
1: I sure can. My first book, Hunted, tells the story of the Zodiac serial killer from earliest as possible to as late as possible, what, what is known. In writing the book, I relied on primary sources Mm -hmm. when at all possible. So almost all of the information is from primary sources. In a few minor instances, I had to use secondary sources because I didn't have access to primary sources or there was I I couldn't vouch for details of what I was writing, but I do mention that in the text. Sure. The, uh, the story is told many different times in many different ways over the last 55 or so years mm-hmm. because uh, a whole lot of uh, myths have uh, grown up around the case. and so They sure have. Feelings, you'll hear about a car chase or you'll hear about, uh, oh, somebody being really big and scary and threatening and um, a lot of drama and a lot of misinformation has, has grown into it. But let's start with the canonical murders. This was a Zodiac was a serial killer who killed in California in 1968 and 1969. Mm -hmm. There were four canonical attacks and five murders. However, there were a number of murders that happened beforehand that could have been the Zodiac or may not have been the Zodiac. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of deaths and murders following those four attacks that could have been the zodiac or may not have been the zodiac we don't know for sure Mm -hmm. the first canonical one happened december 20 1968 just outside of vallejo california in a small turnout that was the entrance to a pump station Mm -hmm. it was known as a lover's lane area and a young couple david faraday and betty lou jensen Two high school students who had never been on a date before with each other. Mm -hmm. And in fact, for Betty Lou, it was her first date ever. Mm. They spent a little bit of time there in their parked car, hugging and kissing. And then what precisely took place, we don't know because nobody survived. Neither of those two lived to tell the story. The only one who survived was the perpetrator who drove away and has never been found. Yeah. But from witnesses who drove along that road and reported what they saw, they realized there was about a six-minute time period in which this attack occurred. Apparently, the perpetrator parked beside them in his car, got out of the car, and somehow coerced the two to get out of their vehicle. And David Faraday was killed just outside the passenger side of the Rambler. He uh, was was dropped to the ground with a single bullet to his head. Mm. Betty Lou Jensen fled for her life, and about twenty seven feet away from the car, she was shot five times in the back.
0: And he used a special kind of device on his gun, right? I, I think this shows kind of a sophistication that we can, you know, get into later. But he used a, a special. Sight on his gun, right? Or a.
1: He, he claimed to. In a okay. follow up letter um, the following year, he said that he uh, um, used a. a, a f- tied up a, like a pen flashlight to his, the barrel of his gun mm-hmm. so that he could use it to aim and to see what he was shooting at. Whether that actually happened or not, we don't know, but that's what he claimed to have happened. Mm-hmm. And then that crime remained unsolved despite round the clock work. On the part of a number of deputies,
0: mm-hmm.
1: numerous uh, police departments in the area offered assistance, and in and it of itself, that one crime became one of the highest-profile crimes in California at the time because it was so senseless,
0: right? In, in so random, settlement... <clears throat> excuse me. He he was a master of just putting fear in everybody because everybody thinks. Well, it could happen to me.
1: Yeah. There was a lot of fear, but that fear was only ramped up seven months later. Mm. When he oh. returned to Vallejo proper, he went to Blue Rock Springs Park and parked behind another couple. Darlene Farron and Mike Michael Majot. They were parked in what was also a Lover's Lane area at this... Uh, rock springs park after dark mm-hmm. it was fourth of july 1969 there were explosions going around in the area because it was fourth of july and people were setting off fireworks and whatnot sure and it's the perpetrator pulled up behind them in his car got out of the car and walked up to the window the passenger side window the um michael Mejo who was in the passenger seat rolled down the window and without any words being spoken by either of them or the perpetrator, the, the Zodiac began firing inside the car and shot both of them numerous times. It is believed that he, at that time, he shot Michael twice and Darlene three times. Then he walked back toward the the rear of his went went back toward his car, mm-hmm. and he heard some kind of sound. Uh, it was uh, Michael Majot crying out um michael said he uh he was screaming or he was calling for help or he doesn't know exactly what it was sure the zodiac turned around returned to the driver's side window and fired two more shots into michael Majot and at least two more into darlene and then fled the scene darlene was go ahead
0: i was just gonna say now he's using a 22 at this point right
1: I don't have my notes right in front of me, but I, I believe you're right. It was a nine millimeter, nine millimeter at, uh, Lake Herman road and 22 at, uh, he never reused a, uh, uh, a weapon. It, it, it's possible it was the other way around. I, I'm not sure. an expert in guns, but, uh, he never used, reused a weapon. Each, uh, attack was, uh, was done with a different type of a different specific weapon. Cause they, uh, They looked at lands and grooves and whatnot in the bullets and realized it wasn't the same, wasn't the same weapon. Mm -hmm. So what was, uh, Darlene was, uh, rushed to the hospital and was dead on arrival. Mm -hmm. Michael Majot was rushed to the hospital, but he miraculously survived Wow! despite having, uh, four shots taken at him. Uh, he actually jumped into the back seat while he was being shot. And then finally at the end, he, after it was all over, he unlocked the door and fell to the ground outside the car. And that's where he was found by uh, officers. Sounds the like interesting... a
0: miracle that he survived.
1: It truly was. People have theorized that, oh, yeah, he, uh, the Zodiac didn't want him to, to, be, to die. He wanted him to survive. Well, I don't think that's, uh, that's possible. No. It's, it's just by the skin of his teeth that he did he did live. The fascinating part of this one was that uh, following that attack, he drove into Vallejo and made a telephone call Hmm. from a payphone to the police department to announce the um, to announce the attack and, and indicate where the couple could be found.
0: Wow. And that's his first attempt at communication with authorities, as far as we know, right?
1: As far as the canonical murders go, I believe there was one in 1966 that he was also responsible for in which he also sent letters and also said that he had made a telephone call. So that would kind of, um, it's not not confirmed. Other people, uh, intelligent people I respect don't believe it was the Zodiac and that's Mm -hmm. fine. I believe there's enough information to. Connect the two crimes, but not necessarily. Okay. And then
0: what's next?
1: That's that's the first attack, and then about six weeks later, over at Lake Berryessa Berryessa in Napa County, I I should say there's only about a three-minute drive between the first two crime scenes. And after that second crime scene, everybody knew that there was a maniac on the loose. There was a crazy person going around, and for no apparent reason, attacking people in their cars. And so you can imagine a wave of terror came upon that area. For sure. Some people thought it was no big deal. It's just Vallejo area, some local, um, nothing to worry about. But then he showed up in Napa County, Mm -hmm. which is a neighboring county to um, Solano County where the Vallejo attacks occurred. this one's on the shores of Lake Berryessa. Brian Hartnell, And um, Cecilia and Shepard went to hang out at the lake and sit by the lake and talk on a Mm -hmm. Saturday afternoon. And while they were talking, a masked man showed up training a gun on them and uh, started talking to them. Of course, they were quite scared. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what was going on. This guy was wearing a squared black hood and a... I think it's called a Dickie or a shoulder piece, a separate Mm -hmm. piece that uh, came down across his chest. And on the front of this uh, Dickie was a symbol of the Zodiac, a cross-haired circle. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that he was dressed in such a weird costume, whatever it was, whatever it meant, he spent a lot of time trying to calm the couple down saying, "I I just want your money. I just want your car as though, you know, nothing's going to happen to you as long as you do what I say. So they talked to each other for about 15 minutes, the three of them there. And then he had Brian tie up Cecilia with, uh, ropes behind her back. They, I, I think they were told to tie each other up Mm -hmm. and then the Zodiac moved in, pushed them to the ground, made sure that the bindings were tight on their hands and then hog tied them. Tied their feet up and uh, hog-tied them on their bellies on the ground. At this point, the couple—they had never heard of the Zodiac before. The symbol meant nothing to them. Sure. They just thought it was a robbery. In fact, Brian thought, "What a good opportunity! I'm going to be able to write a paper about this—this uh-huh. this, uh, interesting experience." But once he had hog-tied them, the Zodiac pulled a foot-long knife out of his a scabbard on his belt and began to stab them in the back. First, he stabbed Brian about six times, and then he turned his attention to Cecilia and stabbed her ten times—five times in the front and five times in the back—as she rolled around and tried to get away. It was an about an hour before uh, police were alerted and were able to get to the site, and then summon an ambulance. And it was a while before they made it back to the hospital in napa cecilia slipped into a coma and died two days later but brian miraculously survived which uh is even more miraculous than um, michael mageau surviving
0: mm-hmm.
1: with you know six bayonet style knife stab wounds to the back wow supposedly wow. one of the stab wounds missed his heart by millimeters yeah and so by all rights he should have been dead but he was able to survive and discuss the conversation they had, what he saw, what he experienced. Um, and so he has been a rich source of information on the case. Mm-hmm. Once again, after this attack, the Zodiac drove into Napa, which is kind of interesting because both the ambulance and the killer drove into Napa. And then from a phone booth in Napa, the Zodiac called the police department and announced what had happened. and. Uh, um, yeah, what what he had done and notified the police the, where they could be found on Lake Berryessa.
0: And then he, uh, did he deface their car? I, I seem to remember some vandalism to their car. Did he write something on their car?
1: He did, he did. They were parked on uh, Knoxville Road, about a quarter mile walk down to the water where they were found. Um, the Zodiac walked back up to the road and he wrote on the side of Brian Hartnell's Carmen Ghia and he wrote a Zodiac symbol and he wrote the dates of the three attacks that he had perpetrated Mm. the one outside of Vallejo the one at the Blue Rock Springs Park and then that one September 27 1967 and at the bottom line he said by knife so there was no misunderstanding of what had taken place, and even he even put a time to it six thirty
0: and we have to remember back then you know we worry about people confessing to things they didn't do, but like back then, he would have only had. Newspaper reports. It's not like he had access to the internet where thousands of people were talking about it and the time was go- getting out and all the details were getting out. I'm sure they had some holdback information. So basically, he was proving I am the one that did all these because I have all this information that if I wasn't the killer, I wouldn't have.
1: Correct. Correct. And soon he would begin co- corresponding with the police departments and um, they would be asking him for proof. And sure enough, he was able to supply proof and follow up letters. So the final attack happened exactly two weeks after the Lake Berryessa attack. And that happened in the Presidio Heights district of San Francisco. The perpetrator, the Zodiac, hailed a cab from somewhere in downtown San Francisco rode the cab out to the Presidio Heights District, and at the side of the road, as presumably he was being dropped off, he pulled out a gun and shot the cab driver in the back of the head, at the, the rear part of his ear, and um, the perpetrator was killed. The, the, uh, the cab driver, Paul Stein, age 29, was, uh, died immediately at the scene. A police officer said that there would have been blood spatter all over the car from that. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the perpetrator was sitting right beside him or right behind him and would have splashed blood throughout the car. The, uh, at that time when that happened, there were a number of kids at a nearby home who looked out the second floor window and saw what was taking place below. They said they didn't hear a gunshot, but they realized something was happening. And this perpetrator got out of the car, walked around the cab, wiped down a few spots on the car, and Hmm. then turned up the road and disappeared. And right after that, about three minutes after the Zodiac left the car, he was walking uh, along Jackson Road. And a police officer who had been summoned to the scene because they were notified of it so quickly, noticed him at the side of the road. And there's conflicting information about exactly what happened. The Zodiac, in a follow-up letter, said that the two cops stopped and talked to him. The cops, um, at least the the driver of that car, was interviewed, and he said, no, we didn't stop. We saw him. We slowed down a little bit, but we realized that he was Caucasian, and reports came over the air that they were looking for a black perpetrator. So they drove by and went over to the crime scene.
0: Did you ever find any evidence as to where this description came from? Was this a description given by these, you know, younger kids? Or was this just simply a case of somebody robbed a cab driver, so it's probably a black guy type thing? We'll be right back with Dr. Hewitt after a quick break. Welcome back, Crib Keepers.
1: Uh, it's never been completely clear. Okay. You know, a police officer was talking to traumatized children who were, I think, like 12 years old. 12 or 14 was the oldest. So these were um, traumatized people. So there, there may have been some kind of miscommunication. Mm-hmm. The uh, police officer may have said it in such a way that the... Dispatch heard it incorrectly,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or somebody <laughs> the day later tried to cover their their rear ends by oh, saying, "Oh wow. no, it was a black person," um, because they should have stopped and they didn't, and they had to f- come up with an excuse for why not. So, no, it's not been made clear. It could have been any of those, and it could be what you said: uh, cab driver robbery must have been a black person.
0: Yeah, I mean, what a missed opportunity! How, how many people? would be alive today if they would have stopped him then, because that's not, I mean, is that the last canonical murder?
1: That is the last one. Okay. Um, the, the, um, the other suspicion is if they had pulled over and stopped him and said, hey, what's going on? He's got a gun in his hand. He could have shot those two cops and continued to go on his way and, and never get caught.
0: Well, that's a good point.
1: (laughs) So they may have been wise not to stop him.
0: Now, what did he take with him when he left?
1: This is the first time that he actually took something from the crime scene. Mm -hmm. He took Paul Stein's wallet and he took Paul Stein's car keys.
0: Okay.
1: Why that's significant, we don't know if they were trophies in his own mind. Maybe Mm -hmm. they were. But as far as anybody knew, this was a routine cab uh, attack. Mm-hmm. If the perpetrator had been caught, he could say, "Oh, this is the first crime I've ever done. I'm not a bad person. The gun went off by accident. It was a it was a mistake. Um, I'll be out in seven years." Yeah. It yeah. wasn't until he escaped from the scene that he sent the letter and said, "I am the Zodiac."
0: Yeah. It's it's important as we're going along to point out that. The Zodiac has displayed that he will change his MO. So, this is not somebody who is dead set on a specific way to do a specific crime to a specific victim type. He's using different weapons. He's using probably different calibers. He's using just everything is changing. And that's important because I think when most people think of serial killers, you know, they think of like criminal minds or or something where they're like, nope, this person would not, you know, veer away from their MO. But we're seeing that within just five murders, everything's different. So that's important as we're going along. But do you think that these were trophies. And, and I know you said that there's no like specific evidence, but in your gut, do you think these are trophies?
1: I do not. I think it was an attempt to, and and I have no data to back this up, but it just seems like this is an attempt to make it look like a cab drive driver robbery that could not be connected to anything else. He would not have been identified as the Zodiac um, if he had been arrested by the cops at that time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: backup evidence would be that he took no trophies from previous uh, crime scenes. And yeah, we have no reason to believe that he was a trophy maker, a trophy taker, except from the for the keys in the wallet. And, and you know, taking the, the keys makes it the car unusable, the, the cab unusable, in case somebody wanted to jump in the cab and go after him. True. So it may have been that utilitarian purpose as well.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Now, when you were, you know, studying the Zodiac and doing this deep research, this deep dive, did you ever find where someone came up with a proposed IQ of the Zodiac killer or like what did they say about his intelligence level?
1: Well, that's been um, a debated topic since day one. People said, you know, how intelligent is this guy? Um, Did he get lucky? Well, obviously, if he walked down Jackson Street and got passed by a couple of police officers and just kept on walking and whether he was talked to or not, he got away. There was a certain amount of luck involved. The fact that he um, moved into the city in a much more populated area where presumably there would be people walking around, even though it was nine o'clock at night. Yeah. He he, there is a certain amount of luck. There's a certain level of risk that he took. So he wasn't this um, wasn't this brilliant strategist who (laughs) looked in every uh, every contingency and made sure that he was safe. There was there was uh, a certain amount of planning. Um, So his intelligence, I think, relates a lot to the letters that he sent Mm -hmm. Um, following about a month uh, following the Fourth of July attack. He sent his first series of letters. He sent three letters to three news agencies, two in San Francisco and one in Vallejo and took credit for what he had did, what what he had done. Mm-hmm. He left some information proving that he was responsible for these attacks. And he also, in each one of these letters presented a third of a cipher, a third of a code. It was like a third of a page Uh, rows of symbols.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And these three newspapers, you know, what is this? What is this for? Well, the the Zodiac said, publish these on the front page of your newspapers by the next day. It was by um, August the 1st, or he will go around and kill random people in the city. So people were starting to wonder, you know, what, that the publishers of these papers had to, ask themselves the moral questions. Is it right for us to be publishing these on threat of attack or should we not? Should we not give him publicity?
0: What a tough if we call. don't give him
1: publicity, he uh, he said he was going to kill people. Will we be responsible if we don't publish it? Um, all three of the newspapers did publish it, but uh, not on their front page or not within the time limit that he gave. So they didn't completely follow his instructions but no other random attack. He, he uh, threatened to kill up to a dozen people and that never took place.
0: Now, is that the same one where he said that he was going to murder school children?
1: That, that came later.
0: Okay. Sorry. Go ahead with the story. That's
1: all right. Um, the code was uh, decoded within a couple of days by a math high school teacher and his wife who, put in a total of 22 hours, came up with the correct solution. They did a lot of trial and error. You know, these three pages, it was just lists of symbols. They didn't even know which page came first, which page came second. Mm -hmm. They didn't know if it was left to right, top to bottom, but turns out it was left to right, top to bottom. They tried different combinations. Mm -hmm. They ran a number of different words through it. The math teacher's wife got the idea that he was so egotistical that he would start with the word I, (laughs) And from that, they came up with the, uh, the hundred word solution. I like killing people because it's so much fun and so forth. (laughs) And you can imagine the, uh, that the, the fact that there are codes involved in this case makes it so fascinating for people. The, uh, he sent a second code that fall and that was not solved until, 2000 and that the December of 220 if you can believe that yeah uh, it was big news when that that was finally solved using um, supercomputers and using um, computers to look at different potential layouts because it's one thing to look at a code and try to figure out what it means but if it's laid out differently mm-hmm. in other words if the uh, if the coder uses every second letter, or every third letter, or every fourth letter, or if he goes top to bottom, or if he goes diagonally, or if it's bottom to top, if it's uh, whatever. There's so many different types of combinations. So three gentlemen working in different parts of the world, each using their own area of expertise, and using a decoding program, were finally able to uh, decode it. Mm -hmm. It was a very complex process, because uh, one of the things that they did was they looked at Six hundred and fifty thousand different potential layouts. Wow! And uh, it's been reported in the newspaper. Oh, they looked at six hundred and fifty thousand possibilities, and they came up with the right one. Well, no, that's not right. It's six hundred and fifty thousand different layouts for the the uh, the code, mm-hmm. and then each one of those individual layouts has to be solved. So it's billions and billions and billions of permutations. <laughs>
0: No wonder there weren't a bunch of people trying to crack it.
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of people cracked it. A lot of people have taken credit for it over the number of decades and came out with these uh, solutions that were not very convincing and not very intelligent. People who didn't really understand how code making and how code breaking works. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people said that they solved it. I, I'm sure yeah. there was at least a dozen potential solutions to it, but... um it was more about people reading into it what they wanted to see sure but the fbi finally in 2020 said yes it's been solved and it it was worldwide news when it came out
0: so you are on board with this interpretation you believe that that they got it right
1: oh yeah absolutely there's there's a little bit of question there's a couple of words that they're not quite sure how they fit together but what they what the zodiac apparently did was divide the this this uh, 340 code was done on a single sheet of paper with um obviously 340 symbols that's why it's been given the name z340 Mm -hmm. but they divided that box of symbols into three parts and then each one of those parts they went diagonally from top to bottom and inserted the code. So when he filled one box up and went to the next box and filled that box up, and then the final box was only two, uh, rows of symbols at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. And once you lay it out in that situation, then you look for left to right, top to bottom. Then okay. you realize that then you, then you get the code that was, uh, that was put in and it, and it reads like a very smooth sentences, a few mm-hmm. f- coding errors, a few spelling mistakes. But in general, you can tell that that's the correct means, even though um, the code breakers had to look at different uh, different errors where the the Zodiac went to a wrong spot to keep writing. Mm. Um, So there was a little bit of extra work that they had to do to solve it.
0: And in this 340 cipher, he does mention that 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 uh, that was not him on the TV show, correct?
1: Yes. Okay. that is one of the sentences. What that refers to is what took place in the fall of 69. Somebody called into, I believe it was the Oakland, um, Oakland police switchboard and said that I'm the Zodiac. I want to appear in the morning on a television show. There was a television show that was hosted um, a regular morning show hosted by Jim Dunbar. Mm -hmm. It was AM San Francisco. And the person who called in said, I want to, have Melvin Belli on the uh, on the show with with you so I can mm-hmm. call in and talk to him uh, he also said uh, F, he wanted F. Lee Bailey but F. Lee Bailey wasn't available so they went with uh, Melvin Belli
0: and these are lawyers correct
1: they're both lawyers both defense lawyers okay. both extremely high profile yeah um, Melvin Belli is was very well known was a very uh, colorful and celebrated defense attorney so Melvin Bell, I went to the TV station and hosted the show. They put in a separate line dedicated for the Zodiac to call in on, and a lot of people believed that it was the Zodiac who had made the call and the Zodiac would be calling in. Turns out it wasn't the Zodiac who called in, and it more than likely was not the Zodiac who called the the uh, the Oakland uh, switchboard, mm-hmm. but this uh, individual talked with. Melvin Belli and to make sure that the line wasn't, uh, traced with a trap and trace technique. He kept, uh, hanging up the phone and then calling back. So he wasn't hmm. on with them long enough, but there's some there's very interesting, uh, footage of that event. Uh, I believe it, it completely, um, took the, the investigation in a different direction it, it wasted a whole lot of people's time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, what an it appears, awful joke to play
1: yeah and it was it appears it was a um a patient from the napa valley psychiatric hospital oh, who was okay. responsible for it but uh that december the zodiac wrote again and he wrote um he wrote to melvin belli he sent a letter to melvin belli and said that he needed help and it it appeared to be a mocking a tone of mocking mm-hmm. like uh, that's not really me. I'm not somebody who needs help. Um, I'm not reaching out for help, but yeah. So Melvin Bell, became part of the story, whether, uh, whether he wanted to or not.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I guess it's flattering that someone wants to talk to you, but still it goes like, Kind of along with what I was saying, you know, about you being in contact with, you know, people that are serving life sentences. It's like, yeah, it's it's OK. Yeah. I mean, especially defense attorneys, they love their camera time. <laughs> yep. In a certain way, though, I don't know. I would not want to be, uh, you know, targeted in any way by someone who's killed at least five people so far.
1: Yes, Yes. Um, Melvin Belli was an ambulance chaser. In fact, when he when he was asked one time, are you an ambulance chasing attorney? He said, no, I'm not an ambulance chaser. I get to the crime scene before the ambulance gets there.
0: <laughs> oh, well said.
1: But it, uh, it, there was a certain amount of attention that the Zodiac seemed to be interested in as well, because he started in rural North Bay with his attacks and then went to the recreation area of uh, Lake Berryessa and mm-hmm. then went into the center of the city of, of San Francisco. So there seems to be a, an evolution in his work, in his attacks. Not only did they, be, they come quicker and quicker, but there was more at stake with each one of them, a higher catchment area, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so calling Melvin Bella and getting him involved, whether or not he was the one who actually made the first phone call, he at least, um, was looking for attention and roped Melvin Belli into the case by sending him a letter. So the, um, there was a, there was a growing need for greater and greater amounts of publicity.
0: Yeah. I think that that's common, you know, when people want this publicity that it just kind of keeps growing and keeps growing, but he, he also told—I can't remember if it was a paper or it was a, a letter to the police—that he wanted people to wear Zodiac pins, right?
1: Yep, that was a, a future letter. He asked uh, people of the Bay Area to walk, to uh, wear his buttons. Uh, what was very common around um, campuses at that time was people would wear political buttons. Mm-hmm. This is my uh, this is my uh, candidate, or this is my cause, or ban the bomb, or peace symbols, that type of thing. And he wanted people to make up Zodiac buttons. He never said exactly what they wanted to look, what he wanted them to look like. He allowed people to use their own imagination, but nobody ever followed up on it. Yeah. And because nobody followed up on it, he re- reiterated the demand in three follow-up letters with more and more urgency. Like you have to do this, you need to do this. But mm-hmm. of course nobody ever did.
0: In your research, why do you think that he would ask for something like that? Is that a control thing or, or is it just to spread fear to see what you can get away with?
1: I believe there are seven, several levels that uh, the Zodiac was satis- trying to satisfy through these buttons. One was to get publicity for himself and what he was doing. Mm-hmm. It was also to spread a message to people because that's the whole point of wearing these buttons on college campuses. Mm. People were spreading their message, spreading their ideology. So it was that and trying to uh, raise fear within the community. People would see these Zodiac buttons and be afraid.
0: Now, what happened following up to that? Because you talked about the canonical murders, but you believe that there was a couple more that he was responsible for. Can you tell us a little bit about those or, or are we cutting into the timeline here?
1: No. Well, let, let me um, finish up with Paul Stein sure. following that, that sure. murder. Once the Zodiac was sighted walking along Jackson street toward the Presidio park, which is where he dis, um disappeared into enough people had seen him so that a composite picture could be created. It was created and spread quite widely. Mm -hmm. It was shown on television. It was uh, posted up on lampposts and signposts around the city and in um, police departments and in post offices. Apparently being seen by the police officers and having this composite picture spread around put the fear of God in him that that was something that stopped him from killing people or at least stopped him from killing people up close and personal the way he did. Mm -hmm. So that the next uh, couple letters later, he said, I'm going to change the way I. um, And what he was talking about was the way I kill people. Mm -hmm. He said he wasn't going to announce the attacks anymore. He was going to make them look like killings of anger uh, uh, or some fake accidents. Which is a pretty clever way of stopping from killing but leaving the whole community to wonder if some of these deaths that were taking place, weren't him.
0: Absolutely. If there
1: was a car accident, if a car ran off the road, if there was a, it looked like some neighbor killed some other neighbor. Well, maybe it was the Zodiac.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So this, this, um, that seems to be where he uh, stopped killing at least as the Zodiac. Mm -hmm. He turned his attention at that point into writing more letters and for the subsequent two years, he wrote regular letters to different uh, police departments or um, news outlets making threats. Uh, he sent a couple of additional codes, codes that were much shorter and are essentially unsolvable because they there aren't enough characters to make it a meaningfully solved uh, sure. code. One is only 13 characters long. Which is, that's actually quite brilliant because if you have a 13 character code, it can be solved billions and billions of different ways. And who's to say one way is better than another way, especially given that the Zodiac was good at dividing it up into pieces or using spelling mistakes or coding errors. Hmm. You can come up with any 13 letter phrase that'll fit it. And people have just done that. So that's kind of what happened up until 1974. The last known letter of the Zodiac occurred in January of 74, though there may have been a couple more later that year. And then there were a couple of additional ones with less credibility, one in 1978, another in 1990. Um, Whether these later ones were the Zodiac or not, uh, it's, it's impossible to tell and may never be known until we find out exactly who it was and find other information about them.
0: Sure. Can you go over a couple of the uh, murders that you believe took place before he turned into quote unquote, the Zodiac?
1: Sure. Let me do the 1966 one. The one that I know the the best took place in Riverside, California. And the Zodiac actually, in one of his letters took credit for that murder. Because that murder was not linked to the Zodiac until one thousand, nine hundred and seventy, and it became a big story in the newspapers. Like, hey, there was a murder down in Southern California that looks very similar to a Zodiac murder. Mm-hmm. Maybe the uh, maybe it was the Zodiac, and that's when the Zodiac wrote a letter and said, "Yes, um, I'm glad that you're finding my my uh, my Riverside activity." Mm-hmm. But he also claimed at that time there are a hell of a lot more down there. Mm. Which is kind of ominous. It's claiming credit for a lot of other murders in Southern California. Um, and there were unsolved murders that may have been uh, connected to the Zodiac. But the one in 66 was a co-ed named um, Sherry Jill Bates. She was a student at Riverside City College. And she was working on a paper so one night uh it was october 30th 1966 she went to the library and took out several books and these books were found in her car but she was not the car was not locked up and there were some smudges grease smudges on the car and it looked like the uh the engine had been opened and and looked into Mm -hmm. the middle coil had been ripped out so that uh the uh the car would not start with keys hmm. and Cherry Joe Bates' body was found in a, in a vacant lot. It, they, weren't, they weren't vacant lot. It was uh, lots of homes that had been purchased by the college in uh, preparation for an expansion. Okay. So these were em- empty homes and she was found in an alleyway between a couple of these homes. Dead, she'd been stabbed numerous times, stabbed and slashed and almost decapitated. But a month after that took place, a letter came in to the Riverside Police Department saying that uh, the person took credit for this uh, attack. He, he hadn't called himself the Zodiac by this time, mm-hmm. I believe. Some people say it wasn't the Zodiac, but he sent the letter in two copies to two different places, taking credit for the attack. He, he labeled it uh, the confession mm-hmm. and then Put a page long of uh, typed prose that was uh, all in all capital letters and it was very ominous and it threatened additional murders and um, said that he had made a telephone call. Mm -hmm. So the combination of sending letters, sending, uh, making a telephone call, and killing a woman all gave people the idea that it might be the zodiac.
0: Now, when we're talking, about the uh, stabbings that he did with the bayonet, I have never seen anyone talk about hesitation marks. And it would make sense that if he had committed a stabbing, like, you know, of Sherry Joe Bates, that there wouldn't be hesitation marks because he's done it before. But it, it, and certainly just because there's not hesitation marks doesn't mean that That he had killed before, but I think that going from shooting someone from, you know, even five feet away or so is a heck of a lot different than, you know, stabbing somebody with a a huge knife. So we're seeing this kind of, I don't know if I want to call it an evolution, but he's changing, he's constantly changing and that's important in, in your story, right? We'll be right back with Dr. Hewitt after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers.
1: Oh, absolutely. Evolving is a is a very good word. The knife that was used to kill Sherry Joel Bates was a They estimated it to be um, not very long at all, like a couple of inches.
0: It was almost like
1: it was a a tiny kitchen knife. Yeah. And it wasn't wide. It wasn't deep. And it looked like he had actually been involved in a fight before actually overtaking her. Mm. So that the, uh, the turf was dug up really bad in the area in which they had conflict so it almost looks like he tried it with this little knife and maybe maybe he wasn't even planning on killing somebody maybe he just went there to use that as as a threat Mm -hmm. but um the fact that there was a lot of stabbings and a lot of slashings meant that it looked like there was a fight going on until he was that he was able to subdue her and then slice her neck a couple of times It, it looks like he went from this tiny blade to a foot long bayonet style knife at Lake Berryessa just because he had experience.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It doesn't work very well with a little knife. If I'm going to kill somebody again. I need something a little bit stronger. Yeah. And then he also got the idea to tie them up before killing them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Now, did anyone ever do any time for her murder?
1: No, it remains uh, unsolved. In fact, two years ago, 2021, the Riverside Police Department put out a call for additional information, mm. said uh, something like a $10,000 reward that leads to the arrest and prosecution of a perpetrator. Wow. There was no follow-up announcement to that, so I don't know how much information they got. Um, obviously, we haven't heard of an arrest.
0: Now, a lot of people think that when you know these killers communicate, especially with the police, that they want to be caught. Was that the case with the Zodiac?
1: No, no. And that's a myth around serial killers. A very common misconception that maybe after a while they want to get caught and so they get sloppy. Hmm. What really happens is they get overconfident and they get arrogant and they start taking more chances. They think they can get away with anything because they've gotten away with so much so far. And so once they get sloppy, once they take too many chances, that's when they get caught but it would be very rare for a serial killer actually to want to get caught. Yeah. Because just the opposite is true. They put a lot of work into not getting caught and that's how they become serial killers. Yeah. That's a good point. And that's a, that's not considering the disorganized or totally psychotic serial killers who just kill and don't even know what they're doing. Those those ones tend to be a lot more easy to catch cuz they They leave a blood trail often. They leave evidence all over the place.
0: Uh, Do you have anything, and we'll tie everything together, I just kind of wanted people to get the story of the Zodiac. Do you have anything else that you want to add to that before we get into the Unabomber?
1: Um, There's so much more information. I know, I know. My first two books in my trilogy, deal with the case and then an analysis of the case. And each one is approximately 400 pages. Wow. So obviously wow. I'm just dipping my toe in the information here today. Um, sure. But there is far more detail of uh, all the names and the places and different uh, witness reports and different evidence that's been collected. So,
0: so if you yeah, want to learn been... about that, buy the book, buy the trilogy, yes,
1: buy the whole trilogy. Absolutely.
0: All right, so can you give us some background on Ted Kaczynski?
1: Ted Kaczynski is the Unabomber. Mm -hmm. He came to attention, well, anonymously he came to attention back in the 1970s when two bombs were placed at a couple of uh, Chicago-area universities. These were kind of amateurish devices that exploded but didn't hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were kind of set aside because we didn't know what was really going on, but that was the start of a almost twenty year attack on North on the United States. I, I guess you would say. Yeah. As many as uh, I believe it was sixteen bombs that uh, Ted Kaczynski placed or mailed through the mail um, with the attempt of trying to kill somebody.
0: Mm.
1: And he was very unsuccessful for. Many years, it wasn't until the 1980s that he was actually able to kill somebody. And he killed a total of three people in uh, in all of his bombings. It was the FBI's longest and most expensive investigation to that point. Um, up until uh, 9-11, 9-11 became a much more um, sure. expensive uh, investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ted Kaczynski passed away in June of this year, June the 10th, 2023. He took his life in custody, in federal custody. He'd been given life uh, sentences for his work once he was caught and was sentenced to uh, life imprisonment with no chance of parole. Mm -hmm. He was um, diagnosed with cancer in 2019, and so he only had about six months left if the two-year estimates were accurate. And so apparently he tied a bedsheet around his neck and took his life in June of this year.
0: Well, he was considered a genius, right?
1: He was. He grew up in a in a relatively impoverished area in his childhood. Uh, his parents were not from, mon- from money. They were uh, first-generation Polish immigrants. Mm-hmm. And um, because of his intelligence and his grades in high school, he earned a completely free ride at uh, Harvard University, Mm -hmm. which is um, almost unheard of. It's extremely rare. Generally, universities, especially at that time, had mostly legacy students, children of uh, other graduates. Mm -hmm. Well, he went to Harvard on a, a full scholarship and um, graduated with a major in mathematics. And then he transferred to the University of Michigan where he spent five years doing his um, graduate work. First for the first two years, um, masters of mathematics. And then the final three years, he um, produced a uh, dissertation and graduated with a PhD. He was so smart that his Ph.D. won him uh, a prestigious prize at University of Michigan for the the best mathematics uh, dissertation of that year. Wow. Then from there, he was hired by the University of Berkeley, where he taught for two years from 1967 to 1969.
0: And that's important because what else happened during that time?
1: What else happened that we were just spending an hour talking about? <laughs> yep. I, um, I, I first heard the idea that Ted Kaczynski could also be the Zodiac, and I thought it was the uh, craziest idea I'd ever heard. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows the uh, Unabomber killed with bombs. He never approached anybody. Um, everybody knows that the Unabomber wrote a manifesto and published it, and it was widely distributed, and everybody knows that he was anti-technology. He cared about the environment and he was trying to alert the world to the dangers of technology and the dangers of losing the environment. So I saw no connection between Ted Kaczynski and uh, the Zodiac. Mm -hmm. However, my deep dive into the Zodiac case led me to work very hard at looking at a number of different potential suspects and who had the opportunity to be involved in this case, who who could be responsible for the Zodiac murders mm-hmm. and also uh, a profile. My second book of the trilogy is profiled mm-hmm. where I take a deep dive into all of the evidence that's available, what we know about serial killers now, what evidence the Zodiac left behind, um, what some of his letters may have said about him, uh, the words he used, um, other, other elements of the, uh, Uh, of evidence that he left behind tire tracks or shoe prints or whatever. And the study led me to the conclusion that, um, you know, fact-based and logically directed um, that Ted Kaczynski is the one responsible for the killings of the Zodiac serial killer.
0: And that's why it's important to note how much the zodiac changed over just the you know few years that that he was active that he just kept changing and changing and changing. And so here we go, another metamorphosis into, you know like, well, maybe um, he you know was scared because he almost got caught uh, walking down the street. and then he's like, well, maybe if I just mail stuff, right?
1: Exactly. And um, we talked about earlier that there seems to be a progression from attacking in the North Bay, in Mm -hmm. a very rural area, and then moving to San Francisco. Well, what are you going to do if you want to make it bigger than California or bigger than the Bay Area? Mm -hmm. Well, you have to go outside. Yeah. And if you're looking for more publicity and you start in Vallejo, contacting a Vallejo newspaper, and then you move to contacting San Francisco newspaper... And then sending a letter to the L.A. Times, which he did laterally in 1971. Mm -hmm. Where do you go from there? Well, you go to the New York Times and you go to the Washington Post.
0: Yeah. Which
1: is exactly what the Unabomber did.
0: Now, everybody thinks that, you know, Ted Kaczynski, I, I almost feel like there is kind of a lot of sympathizers. Like they, they hear his manifesto and they're like, well, some of this stuff makes a lot of sense. And I I mean, you have to take it with a grain of salt, but some of it does make sense, but he just wanted to kill people, right? The, the manifesto came out a long time after he was just murdering people.
1: Exactly. Um, Part of the reason that a lot of people read the manifesto and say, that's a lot of good stuff, that's, that I, I agree with a lot of that, was precisely because Ted Kaczynski wanted to make an appealing message. Mm-hmm. Ted Kaczynski went quiet as the Unabomber for about six years in the late 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. And while he was gone, a lot of people thought, oh, maybe he blew himself up with one of his bombs or maybe he sure. died or whatever. Um, John Douglas, the FBI profiler, mm-hmm. said later on that he suspected that the Unabomber would be doing two things. One is he would be improving the quality and lethality of his bombs, and another would be he was working out a justification for doing what he was doing. Mm-hmm. In other words, he wanted to kill people. He enjoyed killing people, but he wanted people to believe that there was a reason about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The manifesto, as you mentioned, came out in 1995 after many years of the Unabomber setting and sending bombs. He said nothing about technology for the first 15 years of his, uh, his Unabomber career. Mm-hmm. He sent out these bombs. He set them in places. Um, he was just trying to kill people. Yeah. And in the, I believe in the words of the Zodiac, he, was, he enjoyed killing people. Mm -hmm. So this whole idea of um, technology, the problem of technology, it's something I believe that he believed in, but I don't think that that was what primarily motivated his need for killing.
0: Well, because he he didn't like target the, you know, CEOs of oil companies or, you know, computer companies or technology companies, right? I mean, it was just kind of random almost.
1: No, he, he did do that.
0: Oh, he did? Okay, I'm sorry. He did,
1: yeah, he's called the Unabomber. <clears throat> excuse me. He was called the Unabomber because he attacked University and Airlines. Oh, okay. With <clears throat> with bombs. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice here. <clears throat> <laughs> um, so th- that's how we got his name before he was captured. But okay. with regards to um, being concerned about the environment, Ted Kaczynski had no concern for the environment whatsoever. He polluted, he poached animals from his cabin in uh, Montana. He he did a lot of monkey wrenching. He uh, destroyed property. Hmm. And in his notes, in his personal journals, he confessed that all that he was doing, including all of the bombs that he sent out, were done entirely for the sake of revenge. Hmm. This was a man who was very angry. He had felt that he had been given the short end of the stick his entire life. He was filled with rage toward many, many people and organizations and groups of people. And what he did was done out of revenge. It wasn't until the very last year of his freedom that he put out this manifesto saying, I've done this to, for whatever. I've done this because of technology and I've done this because I have a warning. Um, you know, even even what he was doing doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. He mm-hmm. said, I'm only killing people to make sure my ideas get a fair hearing. Well, that doesn't make any sense. No. Not at all. He, he said, you know, I, I didn't tell anybody about my concerns for technology because I hadn't killed anybody yet. But, I mean, since the 1980s, he was he extremely high profile. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody yeah. knew the story of the Unabomber and the fear that it drove universities and airlines. Um, and he still said nothing about technology or his concerns. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, some of his victims didn't even fit into the categories that he wrote about in his, his manifesto. He said he was um, upset with the hard sciences. And anybody who's involved in hard sciences deserved to die or should be doing something else. <laughs> but some of his targets were not involved in the hard sciences and a number of his devices were set in certain places where children could have come upon them. Yeah. Uh, innocent yeah. bystanders could have been killed. It was more about death. And, and he said that in his notes as well. It was about death. He wanted mm-hmm. to kill people.
0: Well, I suspect that if you're 16 years old and you get a full ride to Harvard and you win, you know, the dissertation of the year in mathematics people might listen to you. You know what I mean? It's not like, uh, if I tried to write a book on the environment, people be like, well, who's this loser. But when you're, you know, you're that high profile in general, if you say, man, I was 16 years old, I got a full ride to Harvard. People will probably say, well, maybe I need to listen to what you, what you're telling us. You know, he didn't need Mm -hmm. to kill all these people.
1: Yes. And furthermore, a lot of people have had urgent messages and they have gone out and shared these messages, but they haven't resorted to murder.
0: It's just a a cover up, I think, just like you said, it's, you know, he wanted to hurt people and then wanted people to sympathize with him like, well, no, he wasn't such a bad guy. He had these good ideas and it's like, well, he murdered innocent people and tried to murder a lot of innocent people. So you said he had three victims, but was it 16 other people that, you know, lost fingers, maybe eyesight, stuff like that from his bombs?
1: 23 additional victims. Oh, god! Many of them just minor injuries, but uh, this was over the course of uh, 16 years, 15 years that uh, he had attacked a lot of these people, and um, they were rightfully uh, upset to have been involved in this.
0: Absolutely, so you talked a little bit about his experience with MK Ultra, and I know that you know you you're sticking with true crime, and and we're, we do a little bit more paranormal stuff here from time to time. Can you tell us about uh, Ted Kaczynski's experience with MK Ultra?
1: Sure. Um, this is one of two experiences in Ted's life that may have contributed to his being involved in. Um, murder, and and becoming a serial killer. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he enrolled at Harvard, he was invited to participate in a science experiment. It was the second year of his time at Harvard, and it was in conjunction with a psychology class. There was a very well-known psychologist, professor, researcher named Henry Murray And Ted was invited to participate in a a study that Henry Murray was conducting numbers of people were invited and they were given tests to find out who would be most appropriate. Okay. Little did uh, Ted know that what was being conducted was, um, highly unethical Mm -hmm. and, uh, what would now be illegal, um, illegal research. You don't do research on people without letting them know what's involved in it and what could possibly be involved and what some side effects may be. Sure, they um, were told nothing. Mm. What Henry Murray was doing was he wanted to study uh, alienated people to see how they could be um, used and turned to be able to to answer questions. His whole area was interrogation. Okay. Remember this is just a f- this was during the Cold War, just a few years, what a couple decades after World War II. Mm-hmm. They wanted to know the CIA wanted to know how do we interrogate people? What do we say? What do we do? Sure. Uh, can, we, can we ramp up their stress level? Can we confront them? Can we be really nice to them? what works? Right? So Henry Murray gathered together 22 people that he thought would be really good for an experiment. And supposedly this was the swan song. It was called, uh, I think, the uh, the name of the research project was was codenamed Swan Song because this was going to be his last big research paper before heading off into retirement. Mm-hmm. Ted Kaczynski just got uh, swept up in it, being at Harvard, one of twenty two people. He was the most alienated of all the people within the group, and there was a smattering of of well uh well socialized people and somewhat alienated people he was the most alienated people and i think he was the only one who was from a blue-collar background and, mm-hmm. and didn't have uh, family at harvard but all these participants were put into stressful situations um most of the time what they did was paperwork it was only like a couple of hours a week for three years
0: mm-hmm
1: and they filled out personality tests and did a number of other things but at the very end the climax of it was that they were to present their their philosophy of life and then on camera in front of bright lights present their philosophy of life to another student and the other student would give feedback and they would discuss the philosophy of life mm-hmm. Well, little did the participants know that it wasn't just another student who they were being confronted with was graduate law students who would pick apart their philosophy of life and mock them and make personal attacks, ad hominem attacks, Uh. and um, make it an extremely brutal, emotionally turbulent situation for them to go through. Yeah, And there exists a recording of Ted going through some of this. Some people have theorized that by going through this experiment, Ted, who was emotionally vulnerable, who was very, very alienated already. Mm -hmm. He had social problems that he, um, uh, he broke under the pressure and that's what made him become the Unabomber. Mm -hmm. Um, Other people, and I tend to agree with other people who say, yes, it was uncomfortable, it was painful, but something like that's not going to break somebody and something like that's not going to make them a serial killer. Yeah. You know, this happened in 61, 62. Okay. And Unabomber didn't appear on the scene until 78. So, you know, the direct connection cannot be made.
0: And Kaczynski was born in 1942, right? So that would have made him about 1920 when this was taking
1: place. It actually started before that. He needed his parents' permission because he wasn't even 18. He, he started uh, Harvard at age 16. And so yeah. he was 17 when he entered the research project. So he had to get a permission slip signed by his mother. And his mother hoped that, you know, the truth wasn't told to her either. Right. She hoped that by being around a psychologist, he would get some help that he needed because he mm-hmm. was, uh, he had a lot of social problems.
0: You can't even sentence minors to life in prison because their brain's not fully developed and it doesn't matter if somebody's, you know, some sort of savant or, you know, mathematical wizard, it doesn't mean that their brain is fully developed yet. And, you know, who knows what kind of effect it would have on a kid as opposed to somebody, if they waited till they were like 22, 24, something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And I know you said that you don't think this would turn somebody into a serial killer. And I agree with you. I think that there has to be, you know, something else. I hate to just use the term broken inside somebody, but, you know, for lack of a better term, I I think that that's um, a, a decent description. But I can't imagine someone who can't make friends, who has no social life. And then they bring you in for this and you think, oh, well, you know, I'm smart and they want to learn about me and stuff. And then it turns into just being berated for your, you know, ideas that you put out. So I don't know. Did you find any stressors in his life that may have caused him to snap? We'll be right back with Dr. Hewitt after a quick break. back, Crip Keepers.
1: Yeah, two, two additional ones. When, when he was creepers. about nine months of age, mm-hmm. and, and this happens with every, every uh, high-profile criminal,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we look back into their past and think, you know, what happened to them? Did some experience happen? And generally, it's, it's more complicated than that, a development of a serial killer. Mm-hmm. But at nine months of age, he developed hives across his body and was taken into the hospital and admitted to the hospital, and they treated him. After he was arrested, Ted's mother and Ted's brother, David Kaczynski, Mm -hmm. went and did the rounds of a lot of talk shows and media places, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: trying to convince people that uh, their family was a very healthy family, and the parents were very loving, and Ted Mm -hmm. grew up in a very happy situation. Um, Ted's version of the story is quite different and he wrote quite a bit about that that uh, it seems that his life was uh his home life was a lot more turbulent and dysfunctional Mm -hmm. much more than they were able to let on um to wanda and david's credit they did what they did because they were trying to protect their son and brother from the death penalty yeah so they were trying to turn public attention public opinion toward him and make him look more favorable. But anyway, and, and so during that time, David told, uh, audiences that it was, Oh, he was in the hospital for weeks and, uh, uh, he wasn't allowed. His parents weren't allowed to be with him. So he was separated from his parents and there may be something to that. Turns out it was only a five day deal and the parents could come and visit every other day. Okay. Um, but the fact that he was sick and in the hospital and separated from his parents at nine months of age may have had something to do with his uh, ability to trust adults, sure. trust his parents. Sure, he, he may have come to believe that the world is a dangerous place and uh, uh, you can't trust other people. So between that and a dysfunctional family may have uh, done a lot to on him. There's also, um, a thought that he suffered from mild, um, uh, autism. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. It was called, yeah. uh, Asperger syndrome at the time, but right. it has since been changed to just being a mild form of autism. Um, his mother even considered enrolling him in a, in a program to deal with autistic children. Mm-hmm. Um, but she decided against it, unfortunately, because she was afraid he'd be stigmatized. Sure. Um, so- and so, this autistic, brilliant child grew up acing school, being super successful. And yet, he had an extremely difficult time relating to other people and making friends and socializing.
0: It's been a long time since I, you know, perused his manifesto a little bit. I don't remember any instances where he used sarcasm. And that seems to be, I, I work with adults with disabilities as my day job, and, and a large you know, portion of them have, uh, they're on the autism spectrum. And some you would have no idea, and then there's people that absolutely cannot function. Um, but the common trait is you cannot use sarcasm, you cannot use metaphors, everything has to be Direct, and I don't remember seeing or, or you know hearing about any sarcasm or, or metaphors or anything in his manifesto. Am I
1: wrong? Um, one one point that comes to mind: he talks about uh, the, the uh, growing the economy that the United States uh, has to work hard, and, and our corporations have to be really strong because we don't want the Japanese to catch up to us. Mm-hmm. He says something like, uh, "Holy cow, the Japanese are doing better than we are." Um, oh, okay. I think there's a little bit of sarcasm in that, but but what you're saying is absolutely true because um, Ted was seven years older than his younger brother David, mm-hmm. and when David started to come of age, when he was five or six years old, he picked up on the fact that his brother was very literal in everything that he did and said, and so David, being a younger brother, would lie to Ted. And then uh, Ted would believe him word for word because he had said it. He didn't realize that a six-year-old could bend the truth or whatever. And then Ted would get extremely angry at his brother for uh, lying to him. Sure. And the Zodiac said exactly that. Um, Following the attack on Paul Stein, he was very upset that the uh, police were telling lies about him.
0: Mm. Well, it's not a smoking gun, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff piling up to you know show a connection here i think we should say that there's absolutely no evidence that autism causes any kind of violence or anything like that just to make that clear but it is important in this story because yeah he has no social skills no social life whatsoever and probably feels you know alone most of the time but Let's get into the connections. So you've covered a couple, but in your, in your last book in the trilogy, you kind of weave everything together into a tapestry that, you know, you can understand and you can see the connections without being kind of, uh, bullish about it. Some people are like, you know, this is my theory. I'm right. You're wrong. And you don't take that approach. Can you go over some of the stuff where we see these connections?
1: Yeah, I sure can. A number of books have been written about uh, somebody who accuses somebody of being the Zodiac and they'll say, "Well, their handwriting looks similar or they've been to California before.
0: Or they have a Zodiac watch. (laughs)
1: Exactly. <laughs> That's one
0: of the silliest things I've seen is like, well, he had a watch that said Zodiac. Oh, well, it must be Arthur Lee Allen then because he has a Zodiac watch.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, there's a lot more evidence against Arthur Lee Allen. I'll, I'll give sure, credit sure. to those who believe it was him, but you're exactly right. It's very easy to find one little piece of evidence. Um, I gathered six or seven clusters of evidence. Yes. And each one of these clusters are constellations. Mm. Is full of connections between the Unabomber and the Zodiac. Mm-hmm. Um, before I get into some of those clusters, Ted was a professor at UC Berkeley, and he quit in um, 1969. Mm-hmm. He sent a letter one month following the murder of uh, the murder in, on Lake Herman Road. Mm-hmm. So the December 68 very first canonical murder of the Zodiac occurred over the Christmas break when Ted Kaczynski was on break from being a professor. Hmm. One month after that, he resigned from his position, and his last day of being a professor was June the 30th, 1969. Well, four days later, that's when the attack occurred at Blue Rock Springs. Over the two years following Ted's departure from academia, Ted has about a two-year period where very little is known about where he was and what he was doing. Hmm. He used his parents' Chicago address as his mailing address, but he did not stick around all the time. Mm -hmm. His mother wrote uh, or, or gave an interview where she talked about there being frequent and unannounced departures where he would just take off for a while. I believe he spent a lot of time driving back to California. Yeah. Um, During that two-year period, the bulk of the Zodiac murders and the bulk of the Zodiac letters are written and sent. Um, And then in June of 1971, Ted moved to Montana and bought a piece of property with his brother and started to build his cabin up in Lincoln, Montana. Mm -hmm. Following his move to Montana, there is only a single letter that's authenticated, um, written by the Zodiac. And that was in 1974. So presumably, or potentially Ted was able to leave his cabin and go to California and send another letter saying, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm the Zodiac. So when you, you look at the two timelines of the Zodiac and the, um, Unabomber, they don't really overlap. Mm-hmm. And the two years that Ted was a professor, uh, No, no Zodiac letters or Zodiac attacks happened except for the Christmas, December 80, uh, um, December 1968. Mm -hmm. And the Sherry Joe Bates attack that I talked about was in 1966. That was during the final year of Ted's um, position as a, uh, a student where he was working on his PhD. And he was known to have traveled to California for interviews. To where he eventually worked at uc berkeley Mm
0: -hmm. and then there's more of these constellations
1: oh yeah that that was just the timeline part oh okay sorry (laughs) that's all right i i I (laughs) lost uh, track of what we were talking about sure so the the um as i studied the letters and got to know them and looked at them in extreme detail there are at least 16 letters maybe more there are a number of letters that we're not quite sure whether they're Zodiac letters or not. Mm-hmm. But as you get to know them, you you see, uh, at least I saw, an incredible connection in mathematics. The letters contain an awful lot of numbers. Mm-hmm. They contain an awful lot of symbols. They contain equations. Um, wording, the most prominent is the word radians that's used twice. Mm-hmm. radians is a mathematical number uh, a mathematical term that has to do with an angle um and then the codes themselves what are codes well they are symbols and symbols that need to be solved mm-hmm. kind of like an x yeah uh, x in high school mathematics x is part of equations, solved for x yeah so ciphers don't come from the military a lot of people have put emphasis on the fact that in the military they teach people to do coding and so maybe the zodiac was a was a, a military person well codes actually come from mathematics
0: right uh
1: and upper level mathematics uses symbols not only do they use x y and z and then a b and c but they tend to run out of symbols because the equations are so complex that they use greek letters they use Um, semaphore symbols and they use uh, any number of different symbols that they can use, that they can find to put together these equations. So Ted as a mathematician and a brilliant mathematician was very familiar with symbols, Mm -hmm. was very familiar with solving for symbols, was very familiar with um, codes and how coding worked. Um, So that's a tie right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, A second cluster a second constellation would have to do with um, what was found in Ted's cabin. Ted Mm. was arrested on April 3rd 1996 and arrested for his participation in the Unabom crimes. When they looked in the cabin nobody found a smoking gun nobody found um, anything that you might expect from the Zodiac but they did find uh, categories of things that indicated a similarity. They found in Ted's cabin codes some of the codes were so complex that the FBI said we'd never seen anything since uh, the height of the Cold War, wow. um, the type of codes that were used. In fact, unless the keys had been found within the cabin, they never would have been able to solve those codes. So Ted was not only knowledgeable about codes, but he was very active in creating codes. Mm-hmm. As second category disguises. Ted had sunglasses. Ted had um, hooded sweatshirts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He had uh, different different styles of sunglasses. He had uh, different styles of clothing. He had clothing that he wore um, when he went out as opposed to when he stayed home. He also wrote in his journals about cutting his hair and letting his hair go long, cutting back his beard to leave a mustache, mm-hmm. messing around with his hair as part of a disguise. Well, those three, uh, and, and of course, bombs. He was a Unobomber. So right. um, there, were, there was a, a bomb that had been constructed already to be sent out. Well, what would you expect to find in the home of the Zodiac if you had arrested him? You would find disguises because mm-hmm. he threatened with the. He, he mentioned in his letters that he dis, he used a disguise. Um, and the, the disguise that he wore at Lake Bes, Berryessa included sunglasses and a hood you would expect to find codes because the zodiac sent codes on four occasions to the press Mm -hmm. and you would expect bombs because in letters following his attacks as the zodiac the zodiac sent two letters that had bomb diagrams on them so he had threatened to attack a bus with a bomb Mm -hmm. and he sent a bomb and In a subsequent letter, he sent a new and improved bomb that had improvisations that uh, took care of certain concerns that he thought he might have. So if you had arrested any other serial killer, such as Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy or um, BTK, these people would not have had codes in their possession. They would not have had disguises and they would not have had... um, coat disguise and they would not have had bombs. And that is very typical of them. Those things were not found in the possession of other serial killers. So that's another um, connection between Ted Kaczynski and the Zodiac.
0: I don't think a lot of people know that the Zodiac mailed bomb diagrams. That's not something I had had heard. So,
1: No, it's it's not well known. And some of the people who don't think uh, Ted Kaczynski could be the Zodiac have said things like, well, there's no way somebody starts killing from up close and personal and then becomes a bomber. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Well, the Zodiac himself did that. Once he decided to not kill anymore, apparently after Paul Stein, he became somebody who threatened with letters. And what did he threaten with? He threatened with bombs. He said he was going to place bombs. So the Zodiac himself made that transformation.
0: Yeah. Well, I think also, you know, like I said earlier, we're seeing this evolution, constant change. That's the only thing that's constant, right? Is change. And I don't think there's any smoking gun in the other direction saying there's no way this could be. You know, we see people all the time that just say, well, it can't possibly be that. So it can't be. But Did you come across anything where you're like, hmm, that kind of goes against what I, what I was thinking? Did you come across anything like that?
1: I did. To be um, completely open and honest with my research, I included a chapter in my final book, Exposed, where I talk about what doesn't seem right. And a lot of people have picked up on these. In fact, I, I was talking to a friend on the phone one day, mm-hmm. and he didn't know that I was looking into Ted Kaczynski as the Zodiac. Mm-hmm. And he made the comment, well, Ted Kaczynski, he's the worst Zodiac suspect I've ever heard. <laughs> so my ears perked up. and I said, oh, really? What, what, uh, what don't you think? Uh, what, what makes you sure that Ted Kaczynski's not the Zodiac? And I pulled out a pen and paper and started making notes on what he told me. Mm-hmm. Um, I still didn't tell him until I came out with my book. <laughs> but he made a number of points. And uh, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And, and I respond to each one of these in my chapter in, uh, in Exposed. But one is the size. Mm-hmm. Ted Kaczynski was always um, slight of build. He was never a heavy person. He was uh, 5'8 or 5'9 and um, all of the reports of the Zodiac or at least many of the reports of the Zodiac pointed out that he was a husky person. He was barrel chested. He was Mm -hmm. um, easy to do that
0: with a pillow if you're really smart.
1: Exactly. Um, And in talking about his disguise, he uses the words in one of his letters and these are completely out of context, but he says, all it is, is two coats. Now he puts that into a larger sentence where he's talking about, um, what he did for, to prevent leaving fingerprints. Mm -hmm. He said, all it is, is two coats of airplane cement on my fingers, Mm. um, to prevent leaving, um, fingerprints. So he's aware of fingerprints and any fingerprints that the police have at this point may not be Zodiac fingerprints. They were all always taken from um, very public places. Right, like a Telephone phone booth, booth or something. Phone booth or uh, or the, the taxi cab.
0: I don't know if our all our listeners will remember phone booths. <laughs> there used to be phones in these uh public places where people could go and put a quarter in and, and make phone calls. Now, I certainly grew up on that. But my kids, they're like, you know, when I say... Well, what about, did you find a phone booth there? They're like, look at me like I have three heads. What are you talking about? But yeah, (laughs) I mean, they were used by everybody.
1: In fact, that's where uh, Superman used to change. Right. Going from being Clark Kent to Superman, he went into a phone booth. They don't exist anymore.
0: No, they don't. All right. So what other connections did you find? I mean, I I think I I respect what you're saying and how you're addressing, uh, kind of the, I, I guess, points against. But I think it's really easy to say that if this guy was as smart as we know Kaczynski was, that, I, I mean, putting a pillow in your shirt is pretty darn easy for a guy who's who's that smart. And I also think that. When you're under stress and you see someone who's being aggressive towards you, particularly if they're wearing a giant, I mean, his hood almost looks like a, a paper grocery bag over his head that could have added six inches to his height.
1: Sure. Sure. That, that's the other thing. Um, eyewitness reports are some of the worst evidence that is ever collected at a, with respect to a crime. People have been sent to prison or executed by false testimony, not because people were malicious, but because people just misunderstood or forgot what they saw. And many studies have shown that people's memories change over time. Yeah. Every time you address, every time you recall an experience, and anytime you call to mind a memory that you have in your mind, you change it, mm-hmm. whether you want to or not. And there have been some um, crazy studies that have shown people a piece of video. And then after the video, they'll ask them questions about what they had just seen. And then they said something like, well, did you see the green car driving by? And they'll say, oh, yeah, I remember seeing the green, green car. Driving. Do you remember the blue car that passed the green car, that what you were looking at? So I'll say, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, the, the blue car was driving faster than the green car. Well, these were memories placed in the people's minds by the interviewer. Mm-hmm. There was no green car. There was no blue car. But because they were asked about it, they thought, and then they placed that picture in their mind. Absolutely. So um Absolutely. you ready for another uh, constellation, another cluster? I am ready. Okay. A couple of them are kind of esoteric, and I would encourage people to, if they want to get a full look at, to look into my book, Exposed, that. Some of them are a little bit more involved. Mm -hmm. Um, But one is the book Secret Agent. Ah, Secret Agent is a book by Joseph Conrad. And why that's um, important to look at is because Secret Agent was the favorite book of Ted Kaczynski when he was younger. And he claimed to his family that he had read it more than a dozen times. Mm -hmm. And that if they really wanted to understand him, they needed to read that book and especially look at the um, character within the book called the professor.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, This professor carried a bomb around, and he he built bombs for uh, anarchists, and he carried around a bomb with a detonator that he could detonate if the police ever came close to him and tried to arrest him, Mm -hmm. take his own life. Um, How this relates to the Zodiac case is if you read the, the book, and it's only about 200 pages long, it almost reads like a blueprint for the Zodiac murders and the Zodiac letters. There are so many words, so many phrases that are identical from mm-hmm. the secret agent to the letters. Um, for example, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Britishisms in the Zodiac letters. People have speculated that the Zodiac was British or he had some connection to the British Isles because there's so much um wording saying things like i shall
0: mm-hmm. instead
1: of i will um a lot of these words are found within the pages of secret agent and i, I detail a lot of that in uh because there are pages and pages of phrases that are the same cab of death is in there the number oh. of numbers number of numbers related to uh um the, the Zodiac talks about his ninth victim and his 10th victim. Well, the words nine, 10, 37 are all found within the pages of this book. Hmm. So somebody who would read that book a dozen times and was, um, um, preparing letters to try to throw people off seems to have drawn on that book for a lot of the content. And, um, Joseph Conrad was a Russian, but he was living in, England. And so he had a lot of Britishisms in his, uh, in his vocabulary and his (laughs) phraseology.
0: Now you also talk about, and this is really important to me. You talk about finding his name in some of the letters, you know, if you just mix the words around or mix the letters around a little bit. And I know a lot of people will be like, well, you could do that with a lot of things. Well, he's got a Polish name, first of all. And that's hard to work into anything. And second of all, he was obsessed with this stuff. So it would make sense that this is mixed in too. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We'll be right back with Dr. Hewitt after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers.
1: Sure, he was um, very arrogant. He was very narcissistic. Even as a child, he played with his name and moved the letters around. He wrote to a, a, a correspondent, I think it was a classmate, and he was kind of wrote a joking letter that he was going to solve some really complex mathematical theorem. But first he had to write some I don't know what it was, uh, write some music and the music was going to be his last name played in notes uh, Hmm. on the the scale and it was going to be his name mixed up and he was going to play it over and over and over. So it was his name over and over and over, which is kind of bizarre, Yeah, but it just goes to show you the level of his his detail and his need to move things around. Um, One of the questions that I've had since the very beginning of looking at this case is, where did the name come from? The Zodiac. What, why pick the name The Zodiac? Every other serial killer that we know of, we know their name and we know what it means.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the Green River Killer, the Long Island Serial Killer, the um, whatever. You know, there's, there's all kinds of names, but we know what they mean. And a few serial killers don't like their press-given name and they come up with their own name. Yeah. Like David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Or um, um, Gary Ridgway, the um, uh, Green River Killer, mm-hmm. um, but but even even people that um, come up with their own names like BTK, we know it stands for bind, torture, kill. Right. With uh, David Berkowitz, uh, we know that "Son of Sam" has to do with his neighbor's dog and yeah. he was being commanded. He thought. But anyways, where did the Zodiac come with his his name? Some people have said, well, it has to do with astrology and the, the, the dates and the names of the victims and whatnot all have a astrological connection. Mm-hmm. Well, there's in the Zodiac letters, there's really not much interest in astrology or astronomy, but if you take the, the, the Zodiac's iconic tagline, this is the Zodiac speaking,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which he never actually said when he was speaking, he was only writing this, this is right. the Zodiac speaking is what he wrote. But if you take the Zodiac speaking and rearrange the letters, you come up with Theodore Kaczynski, Ph.D. Wow. Now, it's not exact. You have to duplicate a couple letters. And there are two letters that are conspicuously missing, a Y and an R. But if you look at the uses of the Zodiac speaking in almost every instance on the next line, are the letters Y and R in words such as your or very, very. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it's entirely possible that ted kaczynski was playing with his name came up with this idea of calling himself the zodiac and rearranging it and in virtually every letter that is the zodiacs there are rearrangements of his name ted kaczynski if we
0: were just talking about random people this could be seen as a fluke but when we're talking about somebody who's absolutely obsessed with puzzles and ciphers and stuff like that, I think it's a
1: big deal. I I appreciate that. I do too. Um, Not a lot of people do. They think it's coincidental or I'm I'm looking to find it, Um, Mm. but the places that it exists is more than just coincidental.
0: Do you think that he did this for fun as far as mixing his name in, or do you think he just couldn't help himself?
1: I think it was for fun. I think he was so arrogant that he wanted to have bragging rights over the police. I can even tell you who I am. Uh, one yeah. of the for one of the ciphers he says in this in this na- in the cipher is my identity. Mm-hmm. Well, he kind of plays with that as a puzzle too. He doesn't give his name, but uh, he does give his identity in a in a different way. I won't I won't spoil the uh, the the solution to that. Sure. But um, yeah, he, and and realized at that time, nobody knew who Ted Kaczynski was. So nobody was looking for the name Ted Kaczynski.
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, you talked about the word wood, W-O-O-D, and that seemed to be almost something like Kaczynski was almost obsessed with that too. Can you tell a little bit about that?
1: He was, um, very soon into the Unabomber campaign, the FBI realized there was a connection to wood. The Unabomber would whittle, make these little wooden boxes. And that's what he would put his bombs in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He, not all, not in all of cases, but in numerous ones, other ones, he would take little twigs, and put them in. Huh. He would use addresses or, um, return addresses. mm mm-hmm he would use uh wood related ideas sure he um you know one was from oakland um mm-hmm. the company that was uh, he sent it from oakland was uh, closet dimensions which is kind of funny if you realize that he's living in a cabin in Montana, right. about has the dimensions of a cabin yeah um numerous numerous addresses had had used the word wood used the idea of wood And some people have got from that, that he was focused on the environment. But there's also a a triple entendre involved in that, which uh, um, English writers and English students, uh, English literature students recognize very easily that uh, wood can refer to a number of things. And when it's used as a symbol in literature, it can mean um, um, being crazy. It can refer to trees that are made of wood, but it can also be a sexual uh, reference to, sure. uh, you know, a, a man having wood. So right. um, the the FBI didn't know exactly what he meant by it, but they knew that it was a, a familiar um, theme that was uh, in involved in a lot of the bombs. And the Zodiac used the word wood, W-O-U-L-D, mm-hmm. on, a numer- on numerous occasions within his letters.
0: Kaczynski also, at least from what I know, he did not want people to think that he was mentally ill. And can you go into that a little bit? Like, why wouldn't he just admit it? I mean, it's pretty hard to deny that there's or to say that there's nothing wrong with me when I do all these horrible things. Why was he so worried about not being considered crazy?
1: That's um, a very good point you're making. A couple of reasons. One is he seems to have suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, which is now just considered schizophrenia with a side effect of, or with a symptom of paranoia. Um, Schizophrenics Mm -hmm. who are paranoid tend to not want anybody to know about their illness. And they tend to be the best at fooling everybody to, make them think that they're okay um mm-hmm. and so just by the nature of if that's the and he and he has been diagnosed with that at least on a provisional basis okay and so that would explain why he doesn't want other people to know he wants to get along and do what he does and not any not want anybody to think that he's quote unquote crazy or the word that he used was a sicko um <laughs> And, and that's typical of schizophrenics, plus the fact that and, and he seems to have been had a mild case of schizophrenia back in his 20s, which is not um, uncommon for mathematicians. It seems sure. to be a certain um, biology. The way I understand it is that people who have a propensity for schizophrenia have a greater a number of neurons in their brain or uh, mm. I'm not exactly sure exactly how that works, but it's, it's, sure. it's highly, it's seen quite regularly uh, mm-hmm. mathematicians because they have these uh, extra neurons in their brain. They're able to become great men, great mathematicians and these see things spatially, but they also have a high propensity to um, come down with schizophrenia john nash is a good Mm. example if you've ever seen the uh the movie um beautiful mind yeah that's a a mathematician schizophrenic who uh a mathematician who won a nobel peace prize but became schizophrenic um and then with his manifesto once ted put out his manifesto he didn't want anybody to think that it was the mind of a crazy person he wanted to think that he was uh absolutely doing scholarly work and this is brilliant material and everybody needs to listen to it. At the same time, the last couple of years of his campaign as the Zodiac, he seemed to go a little bit nuts. Um, his letters became more and more desperate, more and more crazy, more and more out there. And people Mm -hmm. started not taking it seriously anymore, which is one reason that many people think that he ended his Zodiac career because since he wasn't killing anymore, and the threats he was not he was making weren't being taken seriously. And his bizarre statements were letting people know that there was something not right with this guy. So it seems yeah. like he ended his career as a Zodiac and then transferred over to becoming a Unabomber and tried to do it in a very scholarly way, a very intelligent way and a very professional way. And so that's a reason mm-hmm. that he dis- distanced himself from being the Unabomber, from being the Zodiac.
0: Is there any evidence that he was maybe treated? I mean, I know there's, you know, doctor-patient privilege and and all that, but is there any evidence that he was maybe treated for a while with antipsychotics and maybe, you know, and then later stopped taking them or, or anything like that?
1: I haven't heard that. I know that when he was arrested in his cabin, he had been prescribed antidepressants. He also had a... A uh, very uh, high loathing for the whole um, profession of therapy, psychological yeah. therapy. He um, he said that doctors had no business looking into other people's minds, which is kind of a convenient <laughs> position to hold if you have mental illness that you don't want other people to know about. Yeah, um, but absolutely. It, it's it is possible that uh, you know once he was arrested and he was given a court appointed. Um, therapist to evaluate him. He was diagnosed provisionally with um, paranoid schizophrenia.
0: Now, is there any other um, attacks, murders, letters, or anything out there that you think might be connected with Kaczynski aside from the Unabomber and the Zodiac cases?
1: Yes, I do. There's a third criminal campaign that I believe the evidence points toward being Ted Kaczynski and that is the Chicago Tylenol murders. Now, I know it's it's uh, there's a popularity around looking into people and saying, oh, they were involved in the John FK assassination and the this and then that. People have said sure. that uh, they've tried to tie the Zodiac into all other kinds of different crimes. But the reality mm-hmm. is that the Tylenol murders Happened in uh, almost a kind of an oval shape, a semi, a, a circle surrounding his parents' um, Lombard, Illinois hometown, where they lived mm-hmm. during 1982 when the attacks occurred. In, in case anybody's forgotten, um, the, the Tylenol killings happened in the Chicago area. Seven people took extra-strength Tylenol and promptly fell to the ground and died. And uh, it was a massive campaign to try to figure out what happened, what was going on, and it turns out mm-hmm. that somebody had gone into drugs, drug stores, purchased extra strength Tylenol. At the time, they were made in capsules that you could open up, and somebody had opened up these capsules and replaced the extra strength Tylenol with um, yeah, cyanide. I'm sorry, so okay, <laughs> mind bleep there, but yeah, filled with cyanide, and so these people were popping uh, cyanide pills and falling to the ground dying. It ended up costing um, Johnson & Johnson $100 million to do a nationwide recall on every one of their Tylenol products. But seven people died, and it's never been solved to this day. In 2011, the FBI requested from Ted Kaczynski his DNA profile so that uh, they could investigate Mm -hmm. him. Um, which tells us that the FBI at that time did not have his DNA. though there are right. some reports that they did have some Unabomber DNA from uh, packages that he sent. Um, how does that tie into Kaczynski? Well, two of the three founders of the company, Johnson and Johnson, have the middle name of can you guess? Wood Wood W Wood. Wow. And
0: that's an odd kind of middle name to have too.
1: I would say so. And then, um, uh, one additional huh. attack was noticed six months prior to the, the, uh, the Chicago killing, uh, an astute doctors mm-hmm. noticed that he had treated somebody for a cyanide poisoning and tried to figure out what, how did he die? They never figured it out, but this took place in Sheridan, Wyoming, which is right along interstate 90 that connects Montana with Chicago. And so that would yeah. be the the route that Ted Kaczynski would go to get from his cabin in Montana to Chicago. So the idea is this might've been a test run. Uh, Mm -hmm. Will this work? Can I pull this off? And so somebody lost their life in Sheridan, Montana. So the, the location of these attacks uh, Lombard, Illinois area and Sheridan, Wyoming points to Ted Kaczynski A number of the locations of where the capsules were placed were in grocery stores or drug stores, had a wood Mm -hmm. or wood-related name to them.
0: Wow. There's, you know, smaller pieces of evidence with this one, but it's really hard to overlook. And it seems like this would be right up his alley, like, look at me, I'm going to, you know, spread more terror in a different way. So, and I think that, you know, poisoners and bombers probably aren't that much different. They want to kill from a distance. They don't want to necessarily be there to, you know, see what happens. So, man, yeah, that's, uh, I had never heard that, but that's, I mean, there's a lot of uh, good evidence there. Is that going to be another book?
1: Uh, That's in, that's in the end of Exposed. Um, Oh, it is. okay. And I'm currently working on a biography of Ted uh, Ted Kaczynski, and so I will be including that as well. But again, people are innocent (laughs) until proven guilty.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Well, that's how it's supposed to be. (laughs)
1: And, And a lot of people think that there's no way one person can be involved in three serial killing crimes. You know, it just it just couldn't happen. Well, that up until the time that the Golden State Killer was arrested when he was found yeah. to be involved in three separate high-profile serial killing campaigns.
0: Well, and he wasn't a genius. I mean, if anyone could pull this off, it would be Kaczynski. Now he had his emotional problems and his social problems, but I mean, what was his IQ? Like 167, 170, one, one just 67, something off the, yes. yeah, off the charts. There's There's no reason that he couldn't have pulled all these off.
1: And he was um, extremely criminally sophisticated as the Unabomber, as um, Mm -hmm. the FBI kind of put together what he had done and read his journals and whatnot. He had a pair of shoes in his cabin that were one size. And then beneath those shoes, he glued on the soles from smaller shoes. So when he walked Mm -hmm. around in the neighborhood doing criminal activities, people who saw the footprints would think, oh, this is a smaller person. Um, this is a person yeah. with such and such shoe size, not a bigger shoe size.
0: That's smart. I mean, that's, that goes, you know, if he's doing that, I'm sure that putting a pillow in his jacket was crossed his mind. So, yeah, I think that the, uh, the descriptions could be way off of the, the Zodiac size and and it worked, right? Uh, I mean, everybody believed that it was, you know, this big, burly guy. So, yeah.
1: um, Ted also, um, according to one official, may have broken his nose six times. Um, The the only reason to do that is to change his facial structure. Oh, like
0: he did it himself?
1: He did it himself in order to look different in case anybody saw him plus he was known in a number of attacks we know this from his journaling that he would take a uh, a cotton ball or a piece of wadded up piece of paper or something and put it in his cheek or in his nose Mm. or somewhere else to make him look different than he should have looked in fact that's probably a really good way to uh, avoid um, facial recognition software yeah you get caught by a casino and you want to go to a different casino That's a great way to be able to get into another casino.
0: (laughs) Well, maybe we shouldn't be sharing these tricks of the trade. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Can you tell everybody one more time where they can find all your books and if you have a website you want them to go to or anything like that? This
1: is shameless plug time. Hey, thank you very much, Jeremiah. I appreciate being here. I'm glad to tell everybody my name is Dr. Mark Hewitt. I'm the author of the Zodiac Serial Killer series. And it comprises three books hunted, profiled, and exposed and these are available on uh, amazon.com. They're also available from my um, publishers website which is geniusbooks.com or any bookstore can order these for you. There's also a collector's edition of hunted the first volume in hardcover. They were mm. they're signed and limited to a hundred. And there are about twenty left, and they can be Ooh. ordered from my publisher's website, GeniusBooks.com. They're about a hundred dollars. I think they're a little bit less than that, maybe eighty dollars. Um, but once they're mm-hmm. gone, they're gone. There's only a hundred of them. Sure. They are signed and numbered, and my books are available in um, on Audibles in in um, a recording, and also in soft cover and Kindle.
0: Nice. You've got everything covered.
1: I hope so. And uh, if anybody wants to talk to me, um, make contact with me, they can do that through my website, drhewitt.com. D-O-C-T-O-R-H-E-W-I-T-T dot com.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for spending so much time with me. I mean, we could talk for another four hours, but, you know, we want people to buy the book. (laughs) Let's
1: do it again sometime, Jeremiah.
0: Sounds great. That's all we've got for you tonight on Cryptique. We hope you enjoyed the show. The socials are all up in the show notes, but we ask that you subscribe and or share, preferably both, but at least one. And let us know what you think at cryptiquepodcast at gmail.com. You can check out our amazing t-shirts, stickers, and racerbacks at cryptiquepodcaststore.com. And if you want to spread a little holiday cheer, buy me a coffee. The link is also in the notes. Don't forget to lock your doors and be weary of suspicious packages. Good evening, Crip Keepers.